fresh episode of fish bites looking forward to the 2020 miami marlins regular season this is eli sussman managing editor of fish stripes where we cover all things miami marlins unfortunately for the past several months that hasn't been much of anything at all a lot of historical perspective a lot of speculation as the entire league Major League Baseball has been put on pause for over three months in the midst of this COVID-19 pandemic. But finally, a breakthrough on Monday night when the Players Association rejected a 60-game proposal for the 2020 season that had a lot of caveats to it. And very swiftly, though, the commissioner, Rob Manfred, and MLB owners voted unanimously to proceed with the season anyway. Per multiple reports from national insiders, it's going to be 60 games and full prorated salaries for the players. Uh, a lot of other wrinkles to it that are still being sussed out in detail. But again, multiple reports citing an opening day, potentially, of July 24th barely a month away from finally getting this season underway. It was an especially highly anticipated season for the Marlins after struggling so much at the major league level the past two years. Now they have so much more uh, high ceiling young talent at various positions that are breaking through to the majors. They made those shrewd veteran acquisitions over the offseason. It looked like improvement from 2019 was inevitable. A lot of enthusiasm and of course, these circumstances uh, take some of the momentum out of their wings. This is a very frustrating process to follow. I hope for some of you, you had the good sense to just tune it out entirely. Like We did our best on Fish Stripes, providing daily updates on the situation and distractions in some cases from the negotiations, but it was frustrating. It was frustrating to follow the league office and the Players Association uh, having so much trouble agreeing on much of anything. The negotiations, I think everybody would agree, were drawn out much longer than they needed to be. And this resolution, while better than nothing, doesn't fully satisfy people. Uh, 60 games, that whatever the presumed the eventual champion of the season is never going to be treated quite the same as they would in an ordinary situation. And of course, there are some things out of their control uh, where the state of the pandemic in the U.S., um, way that it's been managed, it creates some doubt as to whether or not we're actually going to be able to play this season as planned in the first place, just because of all the areas across the country that are still battling it, uh, including in the state of Florida, maybe especially in the state of Florida, one that has had a huge uptick in reported cases uh, as we're recording this and heading into what would potentially be a new spring training, a quote-unquote summer training that begins just a week away, pending the approval from the Players Association. Uh, a lot of other little details that we're trying to solidify, because in the course of this back and forth between the league and the Players Association, there were a lot of little bargaining chips thrown in, such as the designated hitter, uh, how to divide up the playoff revenue, um, uh, the size of the rosters that are going to be used, 
and the the number of off days that are going to take place. It does seem there's some clarity about the schedule that, as had been rumored for the past couple of months, they're going to limit travel as much as possible and keep it regional. The Marlins will only be playing nine other teams this year. There are other rivals from the National League East and the teams from the American League East. The only opponents standing in the way of the Marlins ending their eternal playoff drought would be the reigning World Series champion Washington Nationals, the Braves, the Phillies, the Mets, the Yankees, the Red Sox, the Orioles, the Blue Jays, and the Tampa Bay Rays. An interesting wrinkle in this is going to be fewer off days than usual, but hopefully the limited travel will help manage that. A few extra spots on the active Major League rosters will help shift the load and not overwhelm any one person. It, it's still just a big relief, the fact that they have some sort of plan in place. There is some hope that Marlins fans will get to see Jonathan Villar, Francisco Cervelli, uh, Yimmy Garcia, a handful of these offseason acquisitions signed to one-year contracts that uh, initially there was that risk of them only being a Marlin on paper and in exhibition games, never actually getting to do the real thing. Moving forward, and we're going to be reminding you this on a near daily basis, is the risk of all this falling apart due to health-related issues. We're only a few days removed from Major League Baseball temporarily shutting down all of its spring training facilities in order to do a deep cleaning and to reassess their policies because there was a pretty significant outbreak at the Philadelphia Phillies facility in Clearwater. Overall, approximately 40 positive tests for COVID among players and major league staff members just in recent days around the entire league. Um, By all accounts, uh, nobody's life is being threatened. Uh, The only reason why this is a possibility to even proceed with this kind of thing in the middle of a pandemic is because many of the players are what you would call low-risk groups, where many of them, if they even tested positive, may be asymptomatic or would have very mild symptoms. And as long as they don't have certain pre-existing conditions, they should be okay with it. But one thing that we can't anticipate is players that may be opting out of the season. Uh, a good percentage of players do have uh, some financial security. And even by playing this season, because it's all being prorated, players are only earning about 37% of their usual salaries. Um, and whether it's worth the risk for them to play in the first place is a very fair question, especially for veteran players, especially those that have families that are relying on them to have long careers after the 2020 season. That's one thing that I think we can anticipate is seeing some notable players opt out of the 2020 season to prioritize their health and well-being above all else. And it's going to be, you really can't blame them for doing that because of how little we know about this disease for the basic fact that we now have in this country alone over 120,000 deaths being attributed to COVID-19. And for people who want to take every step possible to avoid adding to that total, it's understandable. Unlike anything for sure that we've ever had in Major League Baseball, it's going to be the shortest season uh, completed in many generations and so many complicating factors Obviously, one being fan attendance and the lack thereof. Uh, We're at a point where one of the only professional leagues anywhere in the world that has fan attendance on a daily basis is the uh, Chinese Professional Baseball League in Taiwan. 
but everywhere else in the world, uh, because of the concerns that COVID spreads so easily in in like crowded places, it's difficult to manage, and um, it's really not worth the trouble in order to actually go through with that and bring fans into the building. So what that does, for all the jokes that people have made about Marlins Park attendance over the year, of many of those jokes have been uh, deserved, frankly, because of the atmosphere at the ballpark relative to others across the league. But any player will tell you, those that are playing right now overseas, former Marlins pitcher Dan Straley is in Korea right now having a lot of success. But he's been the first to tell people on his own podcast and other appearances that it is totally, uh, it's an entirely different game when you're pitching in front of nobody versus an actual crowd that's invested in your success or your failure. And that's something that players will have to adapt to. It'll be a difficult adjustment for fans as well at home because so much of our enjoyment of the games, even if we're just watching from home, especially in these circumstances where, where many of us will be watching from home instead of in public places, that the camaraderie of being around other fans who could get it on social media, especially on Twitter, uh, but in lack outside of that, one thing you rely on is what you hear through the broadcast the emotion that you hear coming through the screen or through the radio, and that might be there. Whatever effects are going to be there this year are probably going to be manufactured by the by the magic of broadcasting effects, and it won't quite be the same. And it's it's just impossible to say exactly how fans and players will adjust to it. I received a handful of fascinating questions from Fist Stripes followers. That's what we're going to spend most of this pod episode doing is digging into those questions as best I can about 2020 and beyond. But one other point I wanted to bring up, this is circling back to an article we had on FistStripes.com. Check out Fist Stripes, some really fun stuff on there. There was that prospect potentially of the season being as short as 50 games due to concerns about MLB ownership pinching pennies, uh, wanting to minimize their losses as much as possible with as short a season as possible, and uh, multiple reports saying that it could be as short as 50 games. You know, Ultimately, we reach 60, but it's the same sort of principle where it's such a dramatic deviation from what we're used to being 162 games, and the findings I got there were just how volatile this is and how unpredictable a season is under these circumstances. Because over such a short period of time, uh, when you have the right combination of players, uh, you have the right health of those players, or simply ones that are uh, in a nice groove in the middle of a hot streak, that even teams with quote-unquote low talent or those without experience, they can really overachieve under small samples. And if the entire season is going to be a smallish sample, then that raises the ceiling for this Marlins team. I thought I was pretty clear with my thoughts back in March that this Marlins team was still far away from being a true contender, that there really was not any scenario under a full-length season for them to make the playoffs or, frankly, to even be aggressive uh, in during the season at the trade deadline, adding players. They weren't going to really take those steps and go for it, sensing that their window wasn't really open to contend just yet. I, I believe that's still true in this situation, that they're not going to enter this spring training 2.0 
with any unrealistic expectations. They're not going to be picking up veteran free agents at the last minute to fortify certain areas of the roster. They're just going to roll out the team that they have. Um, But because of the shortened season and because of some different circumstances that I'm going to get into in just a few moments with these fan questions, that the ceiling is higher on this team. There is a scenario where some of these former top prospects uh, like unveil their full potential very early on and that you have guys that really gel together that potentially with this limited schedule you could get some lucky breaks with these teams that you're matched up with more than usual and take advantage of them there are there is the opportunity for this team to be good if everything goes right there's also the opportunity on the other end of the spectrum for them to be terrible historically bad they could have a lower win percentage than they had in 2019 because, again, a small sample, it's unpredictable, and very small things can sway it one way or the other. A big question is going to be whether or not they have a trade deadline. Does that complicate the travel too much to, to do it? Will teams be ready to make decisions so quickly about a team knowing that the, the full-length season is so small? That's a big factor because that was a reason why uh, the Marlins perhaps didn't seem ready to contend. They would be tempted to unload some veteran salaries in the middle of the year. And that same temptation isn't going to be quite the same this year. The incentives to trade away high-salaried players won't be the same because salaries themselves are just a fraction of what they ordinarily would be. Tons of other variables at play in this situation. And as I mentioned before, we're going to get into that in much more detail later in this week on a roundtable episode of Fish Bites with a bunch of my colleagues here at Fish Stripe. So stay tuned for that. Once we have the finalized details about everything, that's when we'll really dive in and uh, try to make some educated guesses about where the season is going to go for the team. But the rest of this episode, I want to look at some particular questions that we received on Twitter uh, from our great followers. And uh, a couple of them here are very closely related. One of them is from Jason with his username, Jason, 0193-8873. He says, will the Marlins sacrifice service time other prospects for a chance to win now in this 60-game season? A lot of good arms, dangerous lefty bats on the farm. He's absolutely right about the talent down there. And connected to that, a little bit more specific from Jose at Marlins 2021, if service time still counts, and, and it will, does that mean Monte Harrison has a better chance of starting this year when the season does start? And this is an excuse for me to dive into a handful of prospects. Well, made this, te- this season so intriguing on paper for the Marlins uh, under ordinary circumstances is how many of these guys are right on the brink of breaking through to the major leagues. You saw it in spring training, the vast majority of their top 20 prospects were invited to big league spring training, even though few, if any of them, was expected to make it onto the opening day roster. Uh, Several of them were still in camp when uh, spring training got cut off, and even those that didn't were optioned to the high levels of the minor leagues and projected to receive opportunities later in the year. A lot of these guys, they have a lot of experience in the minor league levels, they've been successful performers in the minor leagues, and they have the kind of tools and raw ability that translates to the major leagues. They have high upside. That's a priority for this organization when they've been rebuilding this farm system is they've been prioritizing high upside. Even if these are players that could be volatile, 
they have some kinks that need to be worked out mechanically or with their approach, it's worth it because they put it all together. You have potential all-stars at so many positions. You have a deep team, deeper than they've had at any other time in recent history. That's how you create a contender. And even in these new circumstances, I think we will see a lot of these prospects in the majors. The one name brought up by Jose was Monte Harrison. If you can remember all the way back to late February and early March, Monte was receiving a lot of playing time in spring training, and he was taking advantage of it. A handful of stolen bases, uh, and he was hitting to all fields, really playing with a great sense of urgency. And if you've heard Monte uh, speak publicly, whether it's on team media, whether it's on our podcast, he was a guest on Earning Their Stripes a year ago. He He's a guy that checks all the boxes you want in terms of his intangibles, his readiness to be competitive, his confidence in himself. And so if the results are there and he's at a point in his career professionally that you think he could be pretty close to his physical prime, then there really isn't that much of an incentive to hold him back. Monte would be turning 25 in August, which is very shortly after this opening day. He really had a great chance to be in the majors last year, if not for a wrist injury uh, that sidelined him for a couple months. And yeah, now the question is whether or not he'll be on the opening day roster. And I, I think that only question depends on how exactly the rosters are structured. I, I believe what has been reported multiple times is it's expected to be a 30-man active roster at the beginning of the year, 28 to 30, instead of what was planned to be 26. And among that number, you would imagine the Marlins are going to add at least one more pitcher than usual, but potentially one more outfielder as well, because uh, aside from Corey Dickerson in left field, uh, and potentially with the opportunity for Jonathan VR to play center field, there was some fluidity in their outfield alignment. And uh, Monte is probably the best defensive option they have in center field when he is running the bases and hitting as he showed at times in AAA in 2019 and during spring training this past year, that then he has the potential to be one of the best players on the team, period. So I expect him to definitely see some major league time this year. Because of his age, I, he's just not a type of guy that you gain all that much by holding him back. He's a guy that if he made the opening day roster, got a full year of service time this year, and never went back down to the minors again, he would still be under Marlins club control through his age 30 season. I think with not only Monte, but a lot of these Marlins prospects, they're so likable, you want to imagine them staying with the organization their whole career. If not, uh, especially in Monte's case, there is that relatively clean opportunity to break ties if it comes to that, where you could just go year by year with him through his age 30 season. If they just hold him back a little bit, they would have him under control for an additional year until age 31, at which point it would be understandable if you expect some decline from him. And uh, you could just part separate ways. He'll go to the, his highest bidder in free agency. The Marlins have been through that quite a number of times as a small market team. It happens. And uh, but, but frankly, uh, holding him back in this case in a year where, as I mentioned, the, the ceiling on this team is higher than it would have ordinarily been. They have a lot to gain with the rebuild and by recapturing the fans' attention and excitement by overachieving in this season. And Monte is a guy that certainly raises the potential for this team if he's on the roster in some way.
Also, a couple prospects that I think fit on this roster rather cleanly at some point during the year would be right-handers George Guzman and Jordan Holloway, both of them on the Marlins 40-man roster for the second straight year. Guys that are being groomed as starting pitchers, but both have some serious question marks about their control and whether or not they can throw strikes consistently enough in order to be effective as major league starters. But the clock is ticking a little bit on them because they've now been on the 40 man a second straight year. And they're guys that have electric fastballs and breaking balls. If they simplify their pitch mix to just those two pitches, then you can see them immediately stepping into the Marlins bullpen and having success. I think any of us could agree that's the weakest component of this Marlins team. Looking forward, the offense plugged a few holes during the offseason. The starting rotation should take a nice step forward with the maturation of some of these young pitchers. And uh, the big question is the bullpen, because at the end of 2019, the bullpen was in shatters. They did a total makeover during the offseason, getting rid of some of the guys, even those that had had some success last year. You have no idea what you're going to get, but Guzman and Holloway have the kind of stuff that could uh, pretty immediately put them in very significant roles on the team. They have the potential to miss a lot of bats when they are consistent with their deliveries. So I would expect them at various points this season to both get opportunities. Guys that are uh, that have the kind of physical build that you trust them to hold up in high leverage innings. And like I said, they just have the kind of ingredients to be successful as relievers, even if they're a little bit buried on the starting pitching depth chart. Uh, a couple other reliever names to keep in mind, these guys not on the 40-man roster, so uh, ones that would have a tougher time getting into the mix for opening day, but potentially later in the year, left-hander Alex Vessia, right-hander Tommy Eveld. Um, with, with Vessia, I mean, he's just been successful at every single level of pro competition, dating back for a full calendar year, an amazing scoreless streak that he has, and it's it's just really impressive. You know for a fact that the Marlins feel very highly about him internally, so that will certainly weigh into it. With Eveld, he's a, the, the oldest player that we've mentioned in this group, so someone that you just don't have a whole lot to gain by keeping, keeping him down. Uh, and away from the major league level much longer. He's he's pretty much uh, he's pretty much he is what he is gonna be. And it wasn't really that long ago that there was a lot of enthusiasm for Eveld when he was acquired via trade. He had so much success, similar to Vessia, when he was pitching at the single A and high A levels. Uh, despite a step back last year, um, he's someone that has four usable pitches that he can use in relief situations. He has a lot of experience in high leverage situations working up through the minor league system. Uh, that's just someone, me personally, I feel that Eveld has been a little overlooked in the public discourse here in 2020. So I, I imagine that could change at some point during the year. So the big, bigger complication here on the prospect side is what exactly they do with their conventional starting pitching prospects, the ones at the very top of the lists, Sixto Sanchez Edward Cabrera, Nick Neidert are the ones that come to mind with me, where Neidert pitched all the way at AAA and dominated the Arizona Fall League. Both Sixto and Edward pitched at the AA level and had great success over there. Uh, Sixto and Edward, in most people's opinions, the consensus top two pitching prospects in the organization. And another wild card on top of that would be Max Meyer, 
who was the first round draft pick the Marlins just took. But as of this recording, the Max Meyer signing isn't even official yet. I'm very, very skeptical about him pitching in the majors under any circumstances this year, just because of how little the organization knows about him and the kind of adjustment it would be from going to college, uh, basically straight to the majors in a year where there's no minor league baseball. So I think the focus in this situation should be on Sixto, Edward, and Neidert. And it's hard to say exactly what's going to happen with them. Because uh, on the other hand, we have this really short season that's going to be crammed into a small window. So the limited off days would mean that uh, you could see, you could imagine some teams opting for a six-man rotation throughout the year. The, The potential need to add an extra slot into the rotation because of the lack of off days and potentially some concerns about pressuring your pitchers to do too much in too short a time, the Marlins could be one of those teams that have so many of these interesting options, rotation candidates, that they could go with a six-man rotation. And all of a sudden, these prospects that seem to be on the outside looking in, they could get into the mix uh, even without all that many injuries in front of them. What would help their case of getting into the mix, uh, unfortunately, well, I should say awkwardly, is if they get an opportunity because one of their teammates or a couple of their teammates go down with a COVID infection. Presumably, baseball is going to have a mandatory two weeks or more absence for these type of players. Once they have a positive test, they need to stay away from teammates. Who knows exactly how much they'll be able to work out in the meantime. Uh, It's going to be very disruptive to anybody's season if they have a positive test, even if they're totally asymptomatic. And that's simply going to open up the need for more players to get their opportunities at some point during the season. There's no formula to anticipate who on the team would be more susceptible to catching it. So far, the Marlins have been very quiet talking over these past few months about who, if anybody in the organization has even uh, tested positive for it at any point. We really don't know. And so that's a big wild card in this situation. The one that simply cannot be anticipated in any way or quantified is how that would affect the available players that the Marlins had. But I'd lean towards the possibility that you're going to see more roster churn in this shortened season than you would in in a typical year because of this pandemic that we're living through. And it seems like some prospects could be the nice beneficiaries of that awkward circumstance another question we got from jake bullington his twitter handle coach jake underscore ut just a general question about the evolution of the marlins lineup each year what we'd like to see it look like in 2020 2021 2022 2023 it's a very open-ended question uh the pitching staff as well jake is asking about uh, so i mentioned like some of the names up above guys that um, I'm really enthusiastic about it, especially Sixto. Sixto is a guy that I feel is such a safe bet to be an effective major league starting pitcher, at least early on in his career. Uh, and even Nick Neidert as well is someone that has a much lower ceiling than Sixto or Edward, but I really like his potential of getting off to a fast start in his career and getting acclimated very well because of the precise command that he has of several different pitches and uh, some of the other intangibles that he brings to the equation. So Sixto and Neidert are guys that I'd plan on being starting pitchers for this team for at least the next several years, this whole window that Jake is looking forward to. Another player that I think everybody is falling in love with is first baseman Lewin Diaz, acquired last year in the trade for Sergio Romo. Just amazing power from the left side. 
stunning athleticism at first base as well. Just a really well-rounded player who doesn't swing and miss very often and who seems to be very committed to continue getting better. He's someone I'm really enthusiastic about. I believe he could be one of the best first basemen in the history of this Marlins franchise. Uh, Some other key names to think about. Uh, Of course, Brian Anderson is still under control, not just this year, but at least three more years beyond that via the arbitration process. And he was playing so well as we got to the second half of last season before that unlucky injury where he broke his finger and had to miss the down the stretch the last month plus of the 2019 season. But when he is healthy, I really believe in him, love his well-rounded game and I think he stunned everybody with his defensive play last year, one of the best defensive players in all of baseball. So if this guy's going to be an above-average hitter and a versatile impact defender, then you can trust him to uh, be a big part of this team moving forward. Of course, another big name that really caught our attention this spring, Jazz Chisholm, who has all the ingredients you want from an everyday shortstop Uh, Still a lot of risk in his game, depending on the swing and miss uh, potential issues that he'll need to overcome, but still only 22 years old and someone that you also love his work ethic and his conviction in what the Marlins are building as an organization. What's that say to you that they traded for you? It's saying to me that they actually wanted, they wanted me here. And I feel really grateful that they want me here and want me to be a part of this group that's coming up because it's a really group coming up right now and I can see it and I'm watching it now that I'm here I, I really can see it coming and I'm telling you it's Marlins is going to win a championship in two or three years I love that that's a- one more general thought about the Marlins roster construction over these next few years is I anticipate them being highly reliant on homegrown players and not entirely of their own choosing Uh, The Marlins have been speaking so highly of their farm system. You look anywhere across the industry, and there's a lot of praise for all the waves of talent they have coming through. But realistically, if you want to be a championship contending team, all the other examples in modern history show you need a blend of the young guys and the veterans with some track record, with some loud voices in the clubhouse, guys that frankly will cost a lot of money that the Marlins will have a hard time coming up with. This is already arguably the lowest revenue organization in baseball, and the pandemic hit them at a terrible time right as they were wrapping up this local television deal with Fox Sports Florida that severely underpaid the organization for about 15 years. The hope was that they'd get a substantial raise heading into the long term during the negotiations coming up after the end of 2020, but now all that is thrown a big curveball you have no idea what the television ratings are going to look like for 2020 when the marlins will pretty frequently be going head-to-head against the nba playoffs the nhl playoffs potentially the nfl season and of course is the lingering concern that all these events could be put on hold by the pandemic if you don't even if they're not even able to play these games whatsoever then they just head into the new deal with no momentum and not really much leverage in order to expect a substantial raise from Fox Sports Florida. And so that's a big part of their revenue equation, obviously missing out on all the gate revenue that they were expecting. That's been another 
limiting factor for this organization for years and years and years, simply not being able to sell a lot of tickets for people to attend and not a lot of attractive other concessions and merchandising opportunities. This was another year that they were hoping to take big advantage of that, finally get a lot of their rebranded uh, apparel and other items off the shelves. And that stuff is really put on hold. And the only way that you're going to be selling a lot of merchandise this year is if the team is having a lot of success on the field. Otherwise, there's just not going to be that big rush for fans to continue putting more disposable income in the pockets of this organization. So if you just have these revenue sources that aren't expanding the way that they hoped they would, and unfortunately, despite all the savings that they get for most of the player payroll this year, they were dealt uh, another difficult blow with the fact that someone like Wei-In Chen, who was deservedly cut loose after the 2019 season, um, he's exempt from this prorated salary situation. And as far as I understand, the Marlins get no relief on the $22 million they still owe Wei-In Chen. That's going to be put a big dent into their payroll, given the lack of revenue coming in to offset that. It should be an extremely quiet free agency period for them heading into 2021. And so they'll be betting pretty heavily on all these homegrown guys. If you just look at their top prospects list, a lot of those players will be getting opportunities in the major leagues. And it will be, from that point, a pretty simple meritocracy. The ones who perform well and acclimate themselves best to the big league environment, those are the ones that are going to have regular roles on this team for the near future. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. A couple more questions to get to before we wrap up here. Benjamin Billig, his Twitter handle, at BilligBenjamin, mentioned Jonathan VR and him potentially being underrated. And I, th- I guess he was hoping that I would hype up VR a little bit, someone who was coming off a big statistical season for the Orioles in 2019, uh, 25 home runs, 40 stolen bases, Uh, matching a career high with four wins above replacement, actually setting a new career high going by Fangraph's war. So is he underrated? And the short answer to that is no, I don't really think he is. He is coming off a very good year, and he does have one other year in his career in 2016 that was kind of similar to it. But outside of that, in parts of five other major league seasons, he's someone that you have some serious concerns about what his upside is as a hitter. He has benefited a lot from high batting averages on balls in play. Some of that is a product of his his ability to use and spread the ball to all fields, as well as his speed out of the box, his acceleration. Not a guy that has amazing top-end sprint speed, but his acceleration and how quickly he gets to that top speed and how well he maintains it running down the line, that's allowed him to overachieve some of these peripheral numbers. So... I think it's pretty safe to say that he's going to be a useful piece for this team, an upgrade for this team. The reason why the trade for him was so well-received is because Marlon's offense was so lacking in several departments last year. 
especially in the base running department. Aside from John Birdie, there was just nobody that was getting the green light to run for this team and doing it efficiently. If you look at VR, especially last year, last year was borderline historic from him in terms of the value that he added to his team as a base runner. He didn't set a career high in steals, didn't lead the majors, but he was really efficient and he was great at taking the extra base as well uh, on balls that were live and in play. Someone that was scoring very frequently whenever he got into got into scoring position in the first place. And that seems like a, a very safe tool for him to carry with him into 2020. Someone that is, uh, by most aging curves, he's right smack dab in the middle of his prime at age 28, age 29. And he's only under contract for this one year before hitting free agency, which made it a, a really nice low-risk pickup for the Marlins and no doubt makes him better. I'm still skeptical of what he's going to look like defensively at center field. Most of his career, he's been playing the middle infield positions with the Marlins. They had Miguel Rojas there, who was coming off a, a strong 2019 of his own, and big expectations for Isan Diaz who was tearing it up in AAA last year uh, before reaching the majors and running into a bit of a wall and trying to adjust from that. So I'm still a little unsure exactly where VR fits defensively. I think the versatility overall is more of a positive than not, but he just has so little experience in center, you wonder how much value he'd be giving back to the team if he was used there on an everyday basis. And uh, if he is playing second base instead then that is a bit of a concern with Isan Diaz. That would seem to point to the fact that Isan himself wasn't as productive as you would hope that he would be. Uh, but overall, I think he certainly makes the team better, but let's not get too carried away. I would guess that 2019 was relatively a best-case scenario for VR. So anything like that on a pro-rated basis, the Marlins should be thrilled. One last segment I want to get to here was brought up by a good friend's a, a great reader of Fish Stripes, an avid Marlins fan, Zach Rabb, who wanted to reminisce about some random Marlins players. If you've been following Fish Stripes the last few weeks, uh, pretty much every day, not every single day, but I've been trying to get to it as much as possible, posting a random picture or video clip of a former Marlins player, the random Marlin of the day, generally guys that had a short tenure with the Marlins team and those whose highest level of performance wasn't all that extraordinary uh, because that's what we want to do. We want to highlight guys that can be more obscure and that maybe some people had forgotten about, potentially some players that our followers had never heard of in the first place, ones that were in and out so quickly and lacking in accomplishments that they may have gone under the radar, but simply being in the major leagues is a big accomplishment in itself. And that's why I wanted to circle back to some of these players. So uh, five guys in particular that we've posted in the last week or so, I think we're on a nice roll with picking out these guys that have interesting wrinkles in their stories. So anybody remember John Burkett, Marlins right-hander from 1995 to 1996. He was their opening day starter in 95 and outside of his Marlins tenure, he had a couple Major League All-Star appearances. But the fun factoid about him is that his best sport may have been bowling. As of 2019, he was still competing in and winning professional PBA events. Good for him. 
staying on the pitching side more recently how about right-hander Matt Latos from the 2015 Marlins just a disastrous debut one of the worst Marlins debut appearances ever didn't make it out of the first inning in the game he started what surprised me looking back on it is how sneaky good he was for the remainder of that Marlins partial season he was traded away at the 2015 trade deadline what made him appealing in that trade is that the peripherals were great. He had a 3.41 fielder independent pitching during his Marlin stint, and that was including that you know disastrous debut. The rest of that from there, he was great at attacking the zone, at keeping the ball in the ballpark, and he, he wasn't fun to, he wasn't easy to root for. And the team itself in 2015, you'll remember, they just really never put it all together at any one time, so it wasn't a lot of hope surrounding him. What I also found out is that he's still technically an active player, not in the major leagues, but still pitching professionally. In 2019, he was in the Independent Atlantic League with the Southern Maryland Blue Crabs, and they had moved him to the bullpen, but not just, you know, any obscure mop-up duty. He was their closer, and he was dominant. A 1.06 ERA in 2019, a 0.65 whip, just two base runners every three innings with 25 saves in 51 innings pitched. He spent most of the season healthy, it seems, you know, working high leverage situations. And the Atlantic League, while being independent, it is one of the uh, more esteemed independent leagues in the U.S., so I wouldn't totally rule out, rule out the possibility that someday he finds his way back into the majors. He's still only about 32, 33 years old. And even though his Marlins stint wasn't that memorable, a very colorful personality on that guy, Matt Latos. In the bullpen, Matt Lindstrom had a few good seasons with the Marlins. Overall, 2007 to 2009, he was on the team. He had the highest four-seam fastball velocity in the majors in 2007. I looked it up, and the record-keeping is a little bit sketchier when you go back that far in trying to quantify pitch characteristics. But according to Pinch Pitch Info, and that's, that's this um, velocity readings used on fan graphs, a 98.7-mile-per-hour average fastball velocity in 07 and it was pretty similar the subsequent two years, 97, 98 miles per hour with his heater the next couple of years. I, I realized looking back on it that he has the distinction of throwing the final pitch in the history of Shea Stadium, the final official pitch in the last game that was played there before the, Mar- before the Mets moved over to City Field. That was at the end of the 2008 season. He hurt his rotator cuff early in 2009. It was extremely inconsistent that year, and the Marlins ended up shipping him off for a few different prospects after the 09 seasons, but he had a couple more good years after that with other teams, with the Astros, with the Rockies, I think. Uh, But interesting in that he was someone that had all the velocity you could ever ask for, but not so great with his control and didn't get nearly as many strikeouts as you would hope for someone that had that type of velo that he was working with. On the offensive side, how about Brian Peterson? He was an outfielder in the majors for the Marlins from 2010 to 2012. So he spent his whole major league career with the Marlins and didn't really distinguish himself. He, there was a lot of promise initially. It looked like he might be on to something special. After the 2009 Arizona Fall League, he was one of the best all-around players there. 
definitely had the outfield defense that you were looking for at that position. And I guess there was some expectation that he would hit a little bit. And he simply didn't when he made it to the majors. Overall, 181 games for the Marlins over the course of three years. A slash line of 220 batting average, 303 on base, 305 slugging. Only two home runs in parts of the three seasons. I believe he's on the short list of most handsome Marlins players. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. But that was a bit of a running joke that he had around the Marlins clubhouse when he was up in the majors. Is that he certainly looked the part of a guy that you could build around. He's, he just, the performance wasn't quite there for him. So he, he's he been out of the majors since 2012 and I think pro, retired from pro baseball for a handful of years now. Final one that came to mind is our most recent one that we put out, Eric Reed. Eric Reed from 2006 to 2007 had a couple cups of coffee for the Marlins. During his minor league career, he stole 194 bases in their system as one of the higher stolen base totals in franchise history in terms of you know minor league affiliates and uh, he came up at uh, to the team at a time they were a bit unexpectedly competitive so there wasn't a whole lot of playing time for him he was coming off the bench and it's one of the more unusual career stat lines i've ever seen and that you may ever see moving forward he played in 60 total major league games for the marlins in 2006 and 07 combined 60 games only 68 plate appearances, averaging barely one plate appearance per game for his whole career. The vast majority of his appearances, as you could tell, came off the bench either as a defensive replacement or as a pinch hitter. I think he only started 10 games out of 60. It's the kind of ratio that you just don't see anymore. Playing at a time where most teams carried maybe two extra outfielders, and I guess a lot of his playing time also came as a September call-up as well when rosters were expanded. But even still, this kind of usage is uh, just perplexing for those couple of years. 06 was, most of this, I guess, was under Joe Girardi. So he'd be the guy to ask about how he used Eric Reed. And Reed never got another major league opportunity after 07. And that's unfortunate for a guy that had amazing speed by all accounts. He, you know, he performed that way. And uh, just by the eye test, he showed that he had an ability to affect the game in that way and, and just never got any sort of consistent playing time in the majors. He finishes up as one of the worst hitters. I'd say, without argument, really, he's the worst hitter in Marlins history for a position player. Like, that's it. Like, you've seen some bad ones, especially the last couple of years. But Eric Reed for the Marlins, career six hits and 61 at-bats, a slash line of... 098, 167, 098, never had an extra base hit. And it's just a last reminder that you can't fall too much in love with your prospects. There are some that will never really put it all together or simply not get the opportunity that you would expect them to get because of internal competition. And I guess ultimately that's the sign of a healthy organization when you have more players than you know what to do with, and some guys get squeezed out in that occasion, but hopefully that's just yielding ground for players that have superior all-around games. And as mentioned earlier in this episode, that's what the Marlins are banking for, that their next several waves of young players will have a lot of success stories in them that solidify those positions for years to come and give this team a chance to be a successful contender. 
Could that window of contention open as soon as the 2020 season? There's a little glimmer of hope because of how short the season is that anything is possible. This team could overachieve, and we're all really excited to be covering it moving forward for you and uh, reacting to these unprecedented circumstances. Next podcast episode coming up in just a couple days will be somewhat of a roundtable format. I'll have a lot of my colleagues joining me to try to like make sense of what the season is going to look like and uh, our expectations for the Marlins in 2020. But uh, it's a big relief for me running this website because obviously there's so much joy I get from watching live Major League Baseball and you guys have been very patient. I know the fans have deserved a lot better than this, and they do deserve better than a 60-game season. Uh, so that's unfortunate that we can't quite go above and beyond that total, but it's better than nothing, and uh, we hope you guys will stick around for it. I'm Eli Sussman. Go Fish.